That was awesome. I, I wish I could preach in English and Spanish, but I can't do that. But no, that was beautiful. Thank you. I have been waiting all year long to preach in flip-flops. I really have. I've been just been super excited about it. I was just basically born at the beach, and so this is kind of uh, who I am. And I hope that you will just enjoy today. And uh, it really is designed for, uh, for us to uh, just look around the room, enjoy the room. I, I love Redwood. I love the multiculturalness of our church, and uh, I'm just thankful for what today kind of represents. I hope that you will stay. Uh, the meal designed later, you'll have to give us a few minutes, we'll set up. There's kind of crock pots at, at all different kinds of outlets trying to keep things warm. It's a building that was built in the 50s, so we kind of have to kind of go around a little bit. Uh, but we'll get those in place for you. And the idea is for you to take a plate and not see the first thing that you think looks delicious, like spam, and take it all. Okay, maybe none of you are going to do that, okay? Take a little bit of Mike's spam. But no, the idea is just to take a little bit from the different items and it's a casual setting. There aren't even enough chairs kind of even set up in the fellowship hall. We can kind of be outside uh, along the brick area and just enjoy, uh, enjoy our time uh, together for a little bit. And Pastor Mike mentioned uh, cornhole. How many of you like cornhole? A couple of you. Now, if you're wondering what Mike and I do all week long, we play cornhole. And so we're going to be really, really good for this tournament, and we're going to partner together. No, I'm just kidding. But maybe you want me on your team, uh, because Monday through Friday, that's what we do, and uh, we work on a lot of cornhole. But I hope that you uh, will also stay for our family picnic in a couple weeks. Just a great time of year, isn't it? Just to be able to enjoy uh, the weather change. And uh, my uh, desire is we as a church would just band together and have uh, an amazing unity amongst ourselves. Well, I must be honest with you here this morning, as I am every week, uh, this preparing this message over the last uh, two weeks has has been um, has been is, has been challenging. Just been challenging, uh, even emotionally in myself, and um, wondering if I can speak into this topic and all those different types of things. And uh, my desire is. Uh, to be used of the Lord. And so this morning's message is entitled this, Redeeming the Race and Culture War. Redeeming the Race and Culture War. Can we pray before I ask you a question? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and uh, God, we thank you that, uh, Lord, we have sung about how we have gathered to meet to worship. And uh, Lord, to all types of cultures, all types of backgrounds, all types of where they grew up, how they grew up, and yet we've gathered together and we've done that in one name across the lands, gathered here to say this is what I believe. And God, I pray that Lord, you'd work right now. I pray that uh, Lord, that that you'd use this time that that mightily that, that you would be lifted up. And we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. I want to start off this morning's message by asking you this question. Can all races of people be saved? Can all races of people be saved? That is a ludicrous question, or so you would think. Today it is an actual point of debate and discussion in Christian churches across our world. It is also the title of a new book from InterVarsity Press. 
The fact that the book even exists, let alone that it was released by a once respected Christian publishing house, is representative of an alarming and escalating trend within evangelicalism. Some professing Christians believe believers are making skin color into a gospel issue. Let me give you an example. Kelly Brown Douglas, who is the dean at Union Theological Seminary, she doesn't hesitate to give an answer to that, to that question. Really, the book that InterVarsity has published, she said this, you cannot be white and follow Jesus. Are you awake yet? I realize that I've started this message with a very, with a very edgy introduction. Unlike biblical justice, which is applied equally and indiscriminately to every person, we see in Leviticus 19.15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. And so unlike biblical justice, social justice at times classifies people into groups and pits them against one another. This mindset is very, um, has even infiltrated the church where words like privilege, oppression, whiteness, blackness have become commonplace in some evangelical sermons. So allow me this morning to speak into social justice and the gospel for a few minutes. Scripture tells us that an earthly government, they are ordained by God to administer justice. And believers are to subject, subject themselves to that uh, authority and, and, and to submit themselves. The civil justices, they're, they're ministers of God for good. They're avengers of those who bring wrath on those that practice evil. We see that in Romans chapter 13, verse number 1. Let's follow this text. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For the bearer beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so Paul is saying, hey, you and I, we should, we should submit ourselves to those that uh, would be in authority over us. Now with that said, it is also true that no government in the history of the world has managed to be consistently just. In fact, when Paul wrote these very words to the believers there that were in Rome, Nero would have been the leader. And you and I, we've got to understand that Nero was one of the most grossly unjust, unprincipled, cruel-hearted man to ever have power on the world stage. But see, you and I as believers, and that's what we have gathered here this morning at, is my prayer, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that today you would make that decision. But you and I, we've learned 
in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So worldly power structures are and always have been systemically unjust to one degree or another. Now allow me a few minutes here to speak into, speak into our country. And I want to start off right off the bat by saying, I love America. I absolutely love the United States of America. I love the freedoms that we enjoy and all of those different types of things. And as we are around these other flags of all of these other countries, I think that you're going to hear from me today that I love those countries as well. But I want to say that I absolutely love our country. But I want to be fair to history here for a few moments. Even the United States, though founded on the principle that all members of the human race, as our Declaration of Independence states, are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Founded that way, the U.S., however, grossly maintained a system of forced slavery that withheld the full benefits of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for multitudes. Many generations of people from African ethnicities were legally, but absolutely immorally, regulated to subhuman status. According to the 1860 census, there were about 4 million in the generations of slaves who had been held in servanthood when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The Civil War and the abolishment of slavery did not automatically end the injustice in our country. A hundred years passed before the federal government banned segregation in public places and began to pass legislation safeguarding the civil rights of all people equally. Until then, freed slaves and their descendants in southern states were literally regulated by law to sit in the back of the bus and frequently treated with scorn and rudeness and disgust because of the color of their skin. And anyone today, all they have to do is turn on the news, scroll through social media, and you still see the hatred, the divisions, and the racism, all forms still existing in the country that I just stated that I love so desperately. May I say before you this morning, I deplore racism and all the cruelty and the strife that it breeds. And I am convinced, allow me to speak into this, I am convinced the only long-term solution for every brand of ethnic racism and division is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you please play this video of Billy Graham back during his crusades? first public acts against racial segregation took place at his crusades in the south during the early 1950s at the time it was common practice for ropes to separate the white from the black sections he walked into the crusade and they had ropes up billy saw them blacks were supposed to sit back of that and uh, the whites would sit in front uh, i was uh, appalled at it and decided that i had to speak out on it and had to do something about it I said, no more of this. And uh, I went to the head usher and asked him if he would remove the 
uh, ropes, and he said no, he wouldn't. Billy got up from the platform and he walked down past the ushers and took the ropes down himself. And I remember that the head usher resigned, and there was quite a little flack about that. That was a historic moment in history with the church, and that opened up his friendship with Martin Luther King and other people, and he really practiced what he preached. In a 1956 article published in Life magazine in which Billy made a plea for an end to intolerance, he wrote, it is not sufficient to urge people to love their neighbor unless we lead them also to the capacity to love. Yes. Christ gives men this capacity. We must meet Christ. We must know him as our Lord and our Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. His approach was more of trying to get people into the relationship with Christ, that that would transform their mindset and, and the way in which they live. So they would see people differently um, and thus treat people differently. Everybody's calling is not the same. And Mr. Graham's calling is the proclamation of the gospel in which um, if he can reach men's hearts through the Spirit of God, that can change a man's whole life completely. It is in Christ, in Christ alone, that the barriers and the dividing walls between people groups begin to break down. Only in the gospel is the en enmity abolished and the differing cultures and ethnic groups bound together in one new people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. As Paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus, you've got to understand that biblically there would have been such a rift between Jew and Gentile. Literally, there were walls that were between them. And Christ came in figuratively as well as, uh, as, well as the walls there at in Jerusalem and in the temple literally coming down. And Christ was saying, hey, no, we are now one. We are going to unify in Christ. And so it seems the evangelicals who are saying the most and talking the loudest these days about what is referred to as social justice seem to have a very different perspective than what I will do my best to lay out from Scripture here this morning. Their rhetoric seems to point in a different direction. It often is demanding repentance and compensations from one ethnic group for the sins of the ancestors generations ago. So please hear me carefully. That is the language of the law. And that is not the language of the Gospel. And so it is, it, it's shockingly ironic that believers from different ethnic groups who are now one in Christ have chosen once again to divide over ethnicity. Are we okay? We still breathing? Now I want to say I'm immensely thankful for Redwood. I'm thankful that we have a culture here which all people are created equal and we lean into our only hope for true and lasting peace and that is the person of Jesus Christ. 
So let me for the next few moments share with you what we as a church should be saying and doing with the race and culture war in our country. We cannot solve this massive issue without coming to it first and foremost from a biblical perspective. So please, I'm I'm asking you, hear me out before you make any assumptions. My prayer this morning is is that my my love for you that has been shown over the years and me trying to be biblically accurate week in and week out here would, 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 would have earned your ear even in this matter here this morning. Most of us have, that, that are sitting here, we've heard of Darwin's landmark work, The Origin of Species. If you, if, if you went to any kind of uh, you know, public school growing up, you would, have, you would have studied this, you would have been taught this, but the idea of the origin of species. But its full title exposes the dark philosophy and the motivation behind Darwin's theories. Here's the full title. On the origin of species, by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And so this morning, I want to take the, uh, the, 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 the problem of the, the race and the culture war. We're not going to be able to solve that in, in, in the next 20 minutes or so. But what I desire to do is I desire to redeem that and to take it from a gospel perspective. And so let me say, first of all, number one, there is one humankind. There is one humankind. Darwin believed that every ethnic group descended from different primates and that some of these groups were favored over others. The idea that mankind should be divided into various races, that did not take its kind of real lasting root uh, with it began to take that with the beginning of Darwin's evolution theory, and that was around the mid-19th century. Certainly the idea existed, but it kind of began to take lasting root uh, with these types of theories. This divisive worldview has no place among God's people. It ignores the reality of mankind's common ancestry and that God laid out for us in Acts 17, verse 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth. So in other words, we are all Adam's children. I want you to look around this room, just, just really quick. Take, take a cursory look around this room. We are all Adam's children. So now, hear me please. Biblically, what that means is there is one race. One. And so anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is not speaking biblically. And listen, you and I ought to be speaking biblically about the issues of life because you and I, we are the church. You and I would claim to be the ones that are the truth holders. And so you and I have got to make sure that we're thinking and we are speaking biblically. Now, I get the fact that our society functions with a ethnicity, quote-unquote, but we as the ambassadors of Christ must begin to think more in a biblical fashion if we're ever going to be able to help people get out of the trap 
of our race war. And so you and I, we've got to understand, biblically, there is but one race. And so when you are interacting in your world, and it is multicultural, multicolored, I love it. You and I, we've got to think, hey, hey, we're not different like this. We are one in Adam. So we have one humankind. How can we, how can we begin as the, as the church and as the holders of truth, the pillar and the ground of truth, as Paul said, how can we speak into this? How can we live into this? Well, it starts with you and I understanding there is one mankind. Secondly, there is one problem. Or can I put it a different way? There is one core problem. So the byproduct of all of our shared heritage is that every, every member of the human race, we've got the same problem. Paul alludes to what that problem is in Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Let's all say, thank you, Adam. One, two, three. Thank you, Adam. Hey, thank you. Now, we want to blame Eve. No, no, no. We're not going to go there, all right? Thank you, Adam. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So man's depravity or, or, or man's sinful nature, listen, it levels the entire playing field. Because in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, all of us, every single one of us in this room, we fall short of the glory of God. We all have inherited this depravity, this sin nature coming all the way down from Adam. I want you to follow the statement, although we are not all as evil as we could be, there is no part of our being that has not been corrupted by sin, and we all stand equally guilty before our righteous and holy judge. You, you, you go on the news and you, know, you, so, you scroll social media and there's absolute atrocities out there and we think, oh, I would never do that. I get that. We're not all as evil as maybe some others. However, down to the core, we all have a problem and that is the sin nature. So the truth of our corruption highlights the one dividing line that matters. It's the wall of enmity and separation between a holy God and sinful man. That's the one that we should be giving our most attention, our most our, our effort to, is that is the separation between God and man. From heaven's perspective, which would be a biblical perspective, humanity's fundamental identity is not that of victims, but of perpetrators. All of us. And so in the light of that reality, any form of favoritism, any form of oppression, it's an atrocity. Even the most legitimate claims to victimhood cannot be compared to our offenses against God. The prophet Jeremiah, he, he raised an important question. Wherefore doth a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? Here's what he's ultimately saying. He's like, what are we, what are we complaining about? We're all, we're all sinners. We, 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 we've, all, we've all sinned against God. And so we've got issues, yes, in this life, but the, the, the biggest problem that we have is our problem with sin before God. And yet humanity is still looking for an excuse to plead its case. The church should not encourage such bias. 
We are called to expose the sin in humans. And the human race is, is a general and invite them to repentance and faith. Not to arm people with excuses that are going to fail to convince the ultimate judge. And so you and I, we've got to, we've got to speak into this. One humankind. One core problem. Number three. There is one remedy. There's one remedy. I love this. R.C. Sproul was once asked why bad things happen to good people. And Sproul responded that only happened once and he volunteered. That was Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the only good person that's ever walked this earth. And he volunteered. God sees one race of humanity with one universal problem, sin, and in the person of Christ, God provides the only acceptable payment for our sins. As the Apostle Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I want to do my very best to try to explain that verse theologically for you. For He hath made Him God the Father hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. First of all, Christ was not made a sinner nor was He punished for any sin of His own. Instead, the Father treated Him as if He were a sinner by charging to His account the sins of everyone who would believe. Now, the reason why I say who would believe, I believe Christ died for the sins of all men. But ultimately, if we don't believe in Christ, we will spend eternity answering for those sins. So that's why you see me say that who would believe. Number three, all those sins were charged against Him as if He had personally committed them. He was punished with a penalty for them on the cross, experiencing the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against them all. So if I could wrap it all up in one sentence, it would be this. Our sinful life was legally charged to Him, Jesus, on the cross as if He had lived it so that His righteous life could be credited to us as if we had lived it. Man! That's the remedy! That's the God looking down on seeing, uh, on seeing the issue. The one thing that can actually change our hearts and change our minds to where we can look at people and not see differences, but rather a unifiedness in Christ. Thankfully on the cross, God did not give us justice. He turned justice in our favor. Here I'm about to say, God used an act of human injustice. Oh, by the way, there's nothing that's ever been more unjust than the death of Jesus Christ. Never did anything ever wrong. And yet He was murdered by such injustice. But God would use that human injustice, punishing the righteous one in the place of the wicked, in the place of me, so that now He can be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and not damn us. One humankind. One core problem. Sin. One remedy. Christ. And that leads to number four. There is one 
unity. Having been regenerated and redeemed, you and I, we now belong to the body of Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in, talk to me, Christ Jesus. Do you see it there? For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Our new life in Christ erases the dividing lines that the sinful world loves to draw. And by the way, Paul charges the church, again, again, we're the pillar and ground of truth. You and I, we've got to begin to think biblically. We've got to begin to speak biblically. Paul says, hey, I don't want you to redraw that line. Jesus Christ, he took care of that line, and I don't want you to redraw it. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So in fact, the unity of the church ought to defy such selfish social distinctions. In Christ, you and I, we have been set free from viewing each other through lenses that accentuate ethnic strife economic inequality, and other perceived social disparities that keep, seemingly keep the world's attention. We do not need to cater to the institutionalized partiality of this world. We do not need to think in terms of oppressed and oppressors, disadvantaged and privileged, brown, black, white, or whatever color we are, precious in His sight. Amen? We don't need to think that way. We don't need to speak that way. We do not need to live this way. Listen, the world's going to do that. They've been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years. But you and I, what what is the whole purpose of this message? What should we be saying? What should we be doing? I can't help every single situation out there. There's no way that I can do that. Too much pressure. But instead, what I can do is in my life, And in my family, and we as a church, a unified body, we can live in a way where we don't see it that way. Where we don't live it that way. Where we don't say it that way. When we are out and about in such a wonderful area, so multicultural, that it's almost like we don't even see it. We do not need to subscribe to the value of the world placing on things. We must not follow the world's lead in the futile attempt to combat partiality with more partiality. Now listen, that's not to say that you and I should turn a blind eye to real instances of injustice. Scripture does not excuse willful ignorance or even inaction. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 says, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger and giving him food and raiment. The psalmist said in Psalm 82, How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the land of the wicked. And so you and I, we do not, we do not turn our eyes from it. We do not just say that, it, that, that, that it's not existing. That's not what I'm preaching at all this morning. Instead, it means that we must not mistake the temporal injustice 
for God's primary concern. You and I, we need to cultivate heaven's perspective on the world's conditions. John Piper said it this way, we need to understand that cases of injustice are not necessarily ills to be cured, but symptoms of the comprehensive corruption of sin's spiritual cancer. Here's what Piper's saying. Piper's saying, you and I, we've got we've, we've to understand that if we, if we don't get to the heart of the issue, fruit's always going to be there. The injustices, the hatred, the divisions, those things begin to change when a oneness in the Gospel and in Christ begin to be lived and spoken. Where when you and I, on this Culture Sunday, we realize that we're not in the business, Piper also put it this way, of putting band-aids on severed limbs and chest wounds. As believers, we know the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the only cure for what ails this world. Every single one of us in here, if we, do, if we know Him as our Savior, we have first-hand knowledge of its regenerating power. And we ought to be putting all of our efforts into delivering the truth of the gospel to those who are lost and dying without it. And that's where missions comes in. And that's where church planning comes in. That's where we're the, uh, it, it, you know, just, just ministries, even, even here in our country, of where we give. If you have been giving to missions, I want to say thank you. Praise God for that. And if you haven't been giving regularly, begin to pray. What can I do to begin to impact the countries that are represented in this room and then all countries around the world. So please continue to give to missions. But listen, the, the ultimate answer for the race and culture war is for you and I to live out and to preach the gospel. I love what Billy Graham said. Billy Grant said, how can we, something like this, how can we teach them to love their neighbor without giving them the capacity to love their neighbor? And that's found in Christ, my friends. Jesus. Because of Christ's redemptive work, there's only one distinction now worth making. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. What I mean by that is those that are lost and those that know Christ as their Savior. Romans 5.17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, talking about Adam, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness shall reign in life by one, Christ Jesus. So Paul's making that distinction. Adam, Christ. Verse 18, Therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Adam, we're fallen. Christ, we are alive. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. All those who are on Adam, 
are not our enemies. They're our mission field. Our job. It's hard to do it in 35 minutes. But how should we be speaking? How should we be living? You and I, you can't fix everything. But you know, you know, you, you know what we can do? We can realize that from our eyes, biblically, and from our mind, and from, from our mouths, there's one mankind. I don't see all of the distinctions. I don't see all of the divisions. We are all, we're all one from Adam. I realize functionally there's ethnicities. You fill out anything. You have to put your ethnicity. I get that. But biblically, you shouldn't be thinking that way. One mankind. One real core problem. We've got a lot of problems. I get that. But the core problem solves the other problems. And that is that the remedy is found in Christ for their sin. And then that makes one unity. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile. I mean, literally, it doesn't mean there's no male or female, but even like the distinction sometimes of that. Paul's like, man, eh, there's none of that. We're all one. And let's celebrate that today. Let's celebrate it. The culture Sunday here at Redwood is that in Christ, we are all one. You look around, there's a lot of different cultures in this room, and I think that's awesome. You've got a beach culture here. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, I mean, you've got all different kinds of cultures everywhere. Listen, in Jesus Christ, the divisions begin to fall. So can I challenge you? As Redwood, make sure those divisions are fallen in your heart. And then begin to live and speak that out into a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Every head bowed, every eye closed.